able to get to uh, on uh, Monday the 18th. Uh, and we have left them to the end because the people that wrote these questions can probably find them uh, on, on your Patreon page if you want. I'll read them just the same. So the first one is from Nick. And he says, I hear a lot of terms used, such as the Four Noble Truths, Ten Fetters, Awakening, Enlightenment, Nibbana, and so on, many explaining their own interpretations of what they mean. I could say intellectually, I have a vague understanding of what these terms and interpretations are pointing to. However, the more shadow and parts work I do, that's a nice turn of phrase, the more I realize that I don't actually know much at all. It's as though these terms and interpretations are becoming so distant. This distancing seems strongly linked with the slightly better embodiment, as though I cannot yet reference them fully to my current felt experience of reality. So leading on from this, the questions below might have already been answered before. However, I'm curious as to their answers from a more embodied perspective. Now, if Nick were here, uh, I would ask him to clarify a little bit so that, um, so that I was very clear on what he meant when he said embodied. So I can only speak uh, from my interpretation of that. I would, I would tend to equate a, an embodied perspective as being a perspective of being quite fully present. Um, and the reason for that is that um, uh, the opposite of embodied, disembodied, would seem to me to be uh, lost in abstract thought, um, more intellectual than experiential. Uh, an embodied perspective is a very experiential perspective. I, I feel myself, uh, I feel my body, I feel, I feel gravity, I feel uh, the air around me, I hear sounds, uh, I, I see, uh, I smell, I taste, I'm, I, it's a kind of presence that is very experiential and doesn't actually lend itself well to uh, intellectual abstractions. So on the basis of that, Nick, I'm going to answer your question from the perspective, and, and I do get the sense from the rest of what you say that this is, this is what you're asking. Um, what, did it, what, what is it that these terms refer to in an experiential sense rather than in a, an intellectually defined sense? And you've said 
that, that uh, you notice that many different people have their own interpretations of what they mean. So you're not asking for another interpretation, which is really good. You're asking, what do they feel like? So let's look at the, how you've, the ones you've brought up here. Can you clearly define or redefine your present understanding of awakening from a more embodied perspective? <laughs> what actually is it and how does it feel? Um, what are its benefits? Well, to be awakened is to dwell in a state of maximal awareness and minimal mental constructs. And what the experience is, is one of the wholeness of everything and our senses, and here I will include the mind sense <coughs> as a sixth sense, the The senses, including the mind sense, in a state of awareness, of a wholeness, and of the experience of the phys five physical senses and the mind sense as a perspective within a whole that is completely, it, it is a completely interconnected whole. So it is a liberation, a complete liberation from any sense of separateness. But at the same time, At the same time, it represents a unique perspective. And the feeling that is associated with being is a part of this great continuously unfolding, uh, incomprehensibly vast interconnected uh, interconnectedness of everything is enormously liberating and it is one could say blissful in a, a very very sublime sense and what I mean sublime um, the term sublime um, in in chemistry we refer to the term sublimation. So any solid, whether it's a, 
something that easily changes state, like a block of ice or a rock or a piece of steel or something like that, is continuously undergoing sublimation, which means from its surface there is a kind of evaporation taking place. Um, so the word sublime is referring to something that is, and we say a sublime blissfulness. We're talking about something which is so much finer, so much more subtly refined than anything that we would refer to as uh, happiness or anything like that. Um, it is a positive affect, a positive Vedana. Um, it is characterized also by a sense of, of incredible awe and gratitude that um, gratitude that this awareness is happening. There's no sense of ownership of this awareness. It is inherent within this awareness that it is that this awareness belongs to the whole of suchness, but that there is there is a perspective being experienced within that. Um, now, what's is inherent in awakening are all of these other ideas which are uh, usually expressed intellectually but each of them has its own experiential quality by this I, i've already made reference to the feeling of interconnectedness of wholeness of non-separateness and and of a sort of continuous flow within that. So what we're talking about there are the experiential uh, manifestations of what are referred to as interconnectedness, uh, impermanent change, that, that everything is continuously changing, everything is interconnected. There is a whole, the wholeness, this holistic wholeness of it, uh, that there is no separateness, um, that there, there, there is nothing corresponding to an I, and there is no suffering to it. So all of these things, in, including the emptiness, the, the, the lack of any role for mental constructs, Within, when dwelling in suchness. This is what it is like to be awakened. An awakened being can still, the mind of an awakened being can still, in an instant, generate the world of appearances and can function in that world but with no attachment to those appearances as being real and indeed with an underlying realization that 
to cling to appearances as real is a cause of suffering. And so an awakened being can function in the world and can stand beside you and enjoy a sunset or uh, discuss the uh, beauty of a flower or anything, anything else you can imagine, anything that you would stand and discuss with anyone else, be it sensory and known through the body or be it some sort of uh, intellectual abstraction, they can enter into that mode of experiencing, but without ever really losing this awareness, uh, 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 this awareness that is not their awareness, but is the awareness that belongs to suchness itself, but which is manifesting through that being. So, um, That's about the best I can do to describe it. And you can understand why most descriptions are either rather dry intellectualizations or even more commonly they are what are called apophatic in terms of it's a description based on, well, it's not this and it's not that and it's not this other thing, nor is it this, nor is it that, and so forth. Uh, so that's most descriptions of awakening are in terms of what it's not, because it is very difficult to put into words um, what it is like to be awakened, because words uh, and anything that they refer to are, they belong to the world of appearances, not, not to uh, the nature of suchness. Now, one of the things that I think I'm discovering and beginning to appreciate is that um, a truly awakened being also sees and feels uh, in an embodied way the, the world of appearances as being a manifestation of suchness and therefore this, what I just described, this seeming, this experience of seeming to move from dwelling in suchness to uh, allowing the mind to generate the world of appearances is something that I believe a higher level of awakening transcends that. And the world of appearances then becomes fully integrated within the totality of suchness. Now here, I have, I'm speculating, I have very good grounds for these speculations, but I want you to know that um, what I have just said is a speculation, but um, I hope I've answered your questions about, um, and, and you, I've answered them from a more immediately experiential perspective, which is, I think, what you mean by an embodied perspective, what it is, what it feels like. And, of course, uh, implied in that, I think, are its benefits. Um, so your next question is, how does this term awakening compare to the term nibbana? 
uh, preferably from a Theravadan perspective. Again, from a more embodied perspective. The last question might already get answered from the above questions. If not, then, okay, this is, you're talking about the last question. Okay, the, the, the last question in the series, not the preceding one. Good, I'm clear. Okay, so back to how does this term awakening compare to the term Nibbana? Well, if we look at Nibbana, and as you say, <laughs> there, are, there are so many different ways people have of understanding and interpreting this term. And so I am going to have to begin by speaking to speaking about it at that level the the word is the word that you know if in the time of the buddha somebody were talking about um what we would you say in english were the extinguishing of a flame of a candle or the blowing out of a flame uh, this is what the word uh, nibbana, how the word nibbana would have been used uh, in that day and time. And so we have to look at what is it that is being extinguished. And if we look at the different ways the Buddha referred to or used this word, he referred to an extinguishing of craving and an extinguishing of suffering. And suffering, uh, as you know, or I hopefully know and understand, suffering is, is the result of craving. Uh, in a sense, they really are the same thing because craving is a resistance to what is. It's wanting something, wanting things to be different. Want, uh, Craving as aversion is wanting something not to be that is. And craving as desire is wanting something to be that is not, or else to be able to hold on to something that is, uh, which is impossible because everything changes. So craving is resistance to what is, uh, which another way of saying is it's a dissatisfaction with what is. And what is suffering but dissatisfaction? Uh, as a matter of fact, dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness is the translation of dukkha. Uh, so when we talk about the nibbana of the extinction or blowing out, extinguishing or blowing out of suffering and craving, uh, now, we're talking about a way of being in which the mind of the experiencer of nirvana um, is, uh, here we get into some, you know, uh, words and concepts are, are inadequate. But anyway, I, I have to use the word experiencer to represent uh, it, anyway, the experience of being free from 
all suffering and dissatisfaction and the causes of suffering and dissatisfaction is one of the ways that the Buddha referred to, uh, 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 one of the things that the Buddha referred to as Nibbana. So when we see the Buddha or an awakened person walking through the world, um, speaking to people, um, performing various kinds of bodily activities, and they are free from suffering and the causes of suffering, then they are in that particular nibbana. They are in, they in, are in an experience of the extinguishing, uh, uh, of, of that particular extinguishing. Now there is another, there are other kinds of, uh, by the way, a closely related term to Nibbana is Niroda. Uh, but there are, are other kinds of Nibbanas and Nirodas. And, and one that is spoken of most frequently is the extinguishing of all mental formations. Now, a mental formation or a, a Dhamma, uh, it is, something that it is an object that arises in the mind, an object of consciousness. So whatever, if we say consciousness, there's always something we're conscious of. And that which we are conscious of is some sort of dhamma, something that has been constructed by the mind. When the mind ceases to generate mental constructs, then there is a state of nibbana, of extinguishing of mental constructs that occurs. And this is very often referred to as, uh, uh, this is a kind of nibbana that's often referred to. And it's, it is, uh, one context of using this is the cessation event, uh, where, uh, which usually but not always, not necessarily, but um, often heralds uh, an awakening to one of the four paths, but can be experienced also as the fruition of an awakening. It's a, uh, it is to be in a state where there is no uh, where no mental formations arise, where, another way is put, there is no perception taking place, okay? Um, then there is, and, and so how is that experienced? I, I described to you how the nirvana of, of uh, suffering and causes of suffering is experienced. How is the nirvana of the absence of, of mental formations experienced? It's an experience as, as an absence, just as an absence, as a gap. Um, and it's useful to compare. There's actually two categories of nibbanas or nirvanas. Um, I'm not sure whether uh, this derives from the Buddha directly or subsequent uh, discussions, but uh, in addition to the nibbana of mental formations or the cessation experience, and of course you would not see somebody 
walking and talking and doing things in this particular nirvana for obvious reasons. In the absence of mental formations, we can't we can't uh, carry out functions in the world. Uh, our body could walk, but without something to guide it, uh, it would uh, walk into a wall or something. <laughs> uh, so, but there are two kinds of nirvanas that are talked about nirvanas, the one with remainder and one without. And it's interesting that the one without is also referred to as the, uh, uh, the extinguishing not only of perception but of feeling and uh, it occurs in under two circumstances <clears throat> one is with the death of the body with the death of the body there is the extinguishing of feeling and perception that is called the nirvana without remainder but there is also a state uh, Niroda Samapati is what it's called. Um, it's said to be accessible uh, uh, only, uh, it, it's sometimes referred to as the ninth jhana, and it's, it's said to be uh, uh, accessible only from the third path or from uh, uh, the fourth path, someone who is an arhat. Uh, and the typical description of it is that um, it is like death, except there is still some warmth in the body. Um, and in the descriptions of it, it is not a normal degree of warmth. It's, the body temperature has fallen very uh, to, to a much lower than normal state, but the body does not become cold and rigid as in death. And so this is a nirvana without remainder that people enter into usually for extended periods, um, the, the common reference is to a week or to seven days. Um, but I think there's no reason to believe that it has to be either that long or that short. Um, the other kind of nirvana is nirvana with remainder. And uh, uh, so one nirvana is the Pari Nirvana of death of the body, the other is this Naroda Samapati, uh, which is only accessible. Oh, and by the way, there's a parallel with the cessation there too, that somebody who is third path, who enters this Naroda Samapati, will arise from it uh, as an Arhat, as, as a fourth path attainer. So now this is not something I can speak of anything but uh, theoretically. <laughs> All right, the other kind of nirvana is nirvana with remainder. And that's what the cessation experience would be. It's, it's experienced as just a gap. Uh, sometimes during that gap, depending on what the mind was doing before the generation of mental constructs ceased, there may register in the, in the nervous system, in the memory functions of, of the brain, there may register that uh, the absence of any content to consciousness. And when that happens, when the person arises from this cessation event, um, what they will, what their mind will then take that memory, memory imprint of what just happened and will describe it as a pure consciousness experience or consciousness without an object. 
but that is a nirvana with remainder as compared to the nirvana without remainder. And likewise, the nirvana of the cessation of uh, suffering and, uh, and of craving, uh, which, which is the, you know, so, so, we have, so we have a variety of different nirvanas here. And um, I'm, what I can say about all except the, kind, the nirvana of, of uh, suffering and craving is that they're non-experiences. Okay, so it's difficult to answer your question in terms of what it feels like. It doesn't feel like anything. I think that's that's the important point here. Um, okay, the third part of your question here. Um, once nibbana is reached and the practitioner rests in the state more permanently, does that mean there is no more shadow work remaining and that everything is known, seen, and integrated um, such that we will not fall victim to our shadow parts, influencing how we create and express in this world via thought, gesture, and physical health and well-being, and so on? <laughs> well, <clears throat> Once again, we have to look at how the term nibbana is being used. And one of the very common interpretations of nibbana is to elevate it and to reify it rather than being an absence. And uh, when you're referring to an absence, you always have to qualify that by what the, it is an absence of. And that's what I was talking about before. But there is this tendency to reify Nibbana into something, into a, a state of being. Now, if we're referring to the Nibbana of, uh, of craving and suffering, well, we can legitimately do that. Um, but as far as are there no more shadow parts are there is there no more shadow work i can very definitively say that no that is not the case that may be the case while one sits in cessation and that may be the case of those shadow parts not being uh not being manifest for periods of time when one is in the nirvana of uh, suffering and, and craving. But other than that, uh, no. And there are four, you know, one of the things that you mentioned here is the 10 fetters, and that is related to the, the uh, concept of four paths uh, that describe the progressive development of awakening. That the first path is the initial awakening, but insight continues to, to uh, deepen and to mature, and you go through these, these paths. And all along the way, <clears throat> there's still, there's nothing that magically removes um, 
what you might call the shadow parts of, of your mind. Um, they may become far less evident, in which case you're far less likely to be able to and be inclined to uh, work with them and to overcome them, uh, uh, which is why it's really important to work with those shadow parts as much as possible uh, as early in the process as possible. So in the mind illuminated, uh, that is the purification that we're talking about in stages four and seven. And it's also the magic of mindfulness that we're talking about in, uh, in, the, in, in the, that interlude that, that has that title, The Magic of Mindfulness. Um, this is a kind of work that needs to be done. And um, so at some point, at least theoretically, and I can't say that I have experienced this myself, um, at some point, theoretically, one might reach a point at which uh, through, through the process of practicing the Dharma, they reach a point where uh, they no longer fall victim to the shadow parts that remain or else, and, I, and, and, and I'm not sure which are, but which are of it's both, they either no longer fall victim to the parts that remain or else it may be that they, they come to a place where they've actually worked through and there are no more shadow parts. But I only know that as something that, uh, uh, that I and I think everyone should aspire to. And a very, very important message for you and for absolutely, absolutely everyone that listens to that is please do not think that awakening corresponds to uh, a complete elimination of those shadow parts or an, a total immunity to whatever shadow parts remain. Because um, it's very clear that that's not the case. That that is something that I can see as a theoretical possibility, perhaps something that the Buddha accomplished, perhaps something that others in the last 2,500 years have accomplished. But when we refer to the four paths, uh, then the fourth path is the Arhat. It is still called a path. And what that means is that somebody having attained the fourth path, um, they still have a path. And part of that path has to do with their remaining shadow parts. And it has to do likewise with their susceptibility to those shadow parts influencing how they, as you put it, create and express in this world via thought, gesture, physical health, well-being, and so on. So a very important myth to eliminate is that that this kind of magic happens. Uh, it doesn't. You, you've spent a lifetime as a human being uh, with a mind that has been conditioned by everything that every, everything that's ever happened to you, no matter how small, and most especially by how you 
reacted or responded to every single thing that's happened. And that's where, that's where those shadow parts are generated and they must be dealt with and to expect that they somehow magically disappear. To expect that because a teacher has perhaps attained to one of the higher uh, paths or to even to the fourth path is beyond that is unrealistic uh, and dangerous as well. It results in unhealthy projections on teachers, uh, unhealthy expectations, and for those who have achieved those paths to believe that somehow they have they've done that, that they have achieved some complete transcendent of their shadow parts um, is, uh, is to make them vulnerable to uh, falling victim to those shadow parts again. So that is a message that I would really like to strongly reinforce. So hello, Bill. Very good to see you, glad you could join us. Uh, I've just been going through in some detail um, question from Nick from our, our last session, and I think I've just finished that. Uh, so we're moving on to question from Tom Sawyers. Um, and let's see, he's saying, done many 10 day retreats, meditated about three and a half, three to five, is it? Yeah, I think that's three to five hours per day. Reach a very quiet state similar to what you call bliss of physical pliancy. Yes. Um, no more organic sensation, but very pleasant energy all over the body. In that state, there's hardly any more personal thoughts, but quite a few hypnagogic mental situations like impersonal thoughts, images, etc which in the same time helped me to get deeper into meditation state. As long as I keep my metacognitive awareness very clear, otherwise I would get sleepy or dullness. Um, you do not mention hypnagogia in your book, but those uh, hypnagogia are always present in my meditations. And as I said, very helpful to reach that bliss state. Uh, I use hypnagogia to get into, oh, I'm going to leave that aside for a moment. Um, Tom, I'm, I'm very concerned when, I, when somebody speaks uh, in the way that you're writing. Uh, I'm very concerned that, um, they're, that they're making a mistake and that they're off track here. The point of the practice is not to achieve bliss states. There are blissful states that arise along the way. And the, uh, the physical pliancy that you speak of is usually associated with a mental pliancy and, a, and what is referred to as the fifth grade of piti, of joy, in which uh, after its initial noisy, energeticness uh, becomes a, a, a what would could probably be described as a, a blissful kind of state. But these are not the goal. And 
when you start speaking of hypnagogic imagery arising in your mind as part of how you reach that and the emphasis on pleasure, it always makes me worry that what you're doing is you're, you're entering into a state of sustained dullness. Uh, and that sustained dullness is very pleasant. Um, it is associated with hypnagogic imagery arising. And it is, in fact, um, I believe, exactly the same state that is associated with smoking opium and, in some cases, with using of other opiate drugs. I recall once many, many years ago when uh, I had a minor fracture of the orbit of my eye and it was quite painful and I was given Demerol. And I remember being in this blissful state of, uh, of, in which all kinds of images would arise from my unconscious. And when you read the accounts of, of opium eaters or opium smokers or things like that, or the accounts of uh, some people that are using uh, drugs, you know, modern, uh, modern opiate drugs, um, you find a lot, you, you find exactly that description. And so what concerns me is the possibility that what you are entering into is a state of sustained dullness. And as you say, you're, you're talking about, I keep my metacognitive awareness very clear. That sounds to me, otherwise I would get sleepy uh, or, or go into dullness. That sounds to me like what you're really describing is you're keeping yourself just that level of clarity where um, the dullness is providing the bliss and the imagery, but you're, you're just not letting yourself sink more deeply into it uh, by maintaining a certain level of, of, of alertness. Uh, now, having said all that, um, I do want to acknowledge that there are states, very valuable states, that can be entered into, which have these same qualities and that are not due to dullness. Um, one particular way of working with a relatively deep fourth jhana uh, resembles this very much because uh, in fourth jhana, there is, uh, there is a pleasantness, although pleasure as we usually speak of it, is something that gets left behind in, in third jhana. But there is nevertheless a sort of, I used the term sublime bliss earlier. And this is something that the Buddha speaks of too. One of the places that you might uh, read about it is the jhanas, particularly formless jhanas and the association of, of that with a sublime kind of bliss in the uh, sunyata sutta. Uh, I, I believe it's the in the uh, Chula Sanyata, uh, is it Chula or Mahasanyata Sutta? I don't remember which, but you could look it up. So in fourth jhana, uh, there is 
an ex there is a kind of work that you can do where the contents of the unconscious mind, a lot of archetypal uh, imagery, uh, in effect, a sort of getting into direct contact with uh, what Jung referred to as the collective unconscious can occur. Likewise, in uh, practices like Mahamudra and things like that, where you're actually watching the process by which the unconscious mind generates objects of consciousness that, that, uh, that rise into consciousness. And um, there, that is also associated with a rather sublime pleasure. So I just, I don't want to rule out the possibility that you haven't found a pathway to uh, a state like that. But if so, um, it's not an end in itself. The only purpose for entering into that state would be to uh, obtain or to deepen uh, the kind of insight that uh, that is characteristic of awakening. And so I just, let me sum it up by saying, Tom, sounds like there's, there's a possibility here that you're, uh, you're sitting in dullness and that uh, you're having experiences that uh, while they're pleasant, they are not, they're not the goal of the practice. The goal of the practice is, is profound insight into the, the nature of, uh, uh, of, of things. Um, it, the, the goal is insight that will lead to awakening. It is not sitting in pleasant states. And so wish you were here and I could ask you more, but uh, that's the advice uh, I can give you. Um, if you have a teacher who's familiar with these things and can work with you, they could very quickly determine whether you are entering into a state like that that can be achieved as part of fourth jhana um, or Mahamudra practice or, or other practices and be able to guide you in working with that. But uh, like I say, my strongest suspicion is that you are cultivating dullness and the sooner that you stop doing that, the more likely you are to uh, be to experience insight and awakening. So, any comments from our gradually growing audience? Or further questions? No. Guess not. Okay. And we have a question from Nathan remaining. Um, say we were to view an individual mind system as a sub-mind within a network of other sub-minds, sub mind systems, and our society as a whole as a social network of sub-minds or something like the collective mind system of suchness. Well, actually, Nathan, that's exactly how I do view it. Uh, well, perhaps you go a little bit beyond that when you say the collective mind system of suchness. Um, now, if you think about it, we all have the experience corresponding to our, our individual mind being a sub-mind of a larger collective mind. 
Um, this occurs when a group is chanting, for example. Um, it occurs when uh, uh, a musician is playing uh, in a symphony orchestra. Um, it occurs when uh, a mob forms and, uh, you know, and, and there is a, a, a group mind that begins to, begins to riot. Uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things that point to the reality of these group minds, but um, they're not something, they're something that we can examine our experience and recognize that it points towards that. But do we experience ourselves directly as a submind, as a part of uh, a larger mind system? Uh, very rarely. Someone, someone with a very high degree of, uh, of very well-developed awareness and, uh, and uh, faculties of, of attention as well, uh, used what we call Vipassana would be able to to put this back into the terms of uh, uh, that uh, Nick used of uh, experientially embodied um, could have have this expense, uh, experience of being an experientially embodied sub mind within a larger mind system. Now. When you move this to the level of suchness, um, I think that that, uh, that is part of what constitutes the dwelling in suchness. Uh, when, when one is awakened and is able to drop uh, the, uh, the mental formations, uh, which once again, going back to Nate's question, that, that, would, that would be another example of, um, of Nibbana. Okay, so dwelling in suchness is, is dwelling in, uh, in a particular Nibbana. Anyway, um, so that is that, that dwelling in suchness where uh, one's individual mind um, is no longer experienced as separate, except perhaps in the kind of abstract sense uh, that a submind is separate within a with, within a mind system. So I agree with you there, and um, um, I think when I look at the universe as we know it, it seems to be evolving. With a, it seems to have a directionality to the way it evolves through time, beginning with a big bang, pure energy coalescing into matter and energy, and forming the universe as we know it, including planets like ours that sustain living organisms with minds and so on and so forth, and looking at how life has evolved, and even looking how human culture has evolved, there's a distinct directionality present in that. And so if we were to try to take whatever this thing is greater than our ability, of ability of our mind to encompass, 
and translate it into terms that we could understand. You know, I feel really comfortable saying that the collective mind system of suchness is what is manifesting when we, when we look from a spatial and temporal point of view at the that's what's happening in the universe and uh, and in human society the, every level between the two as a reflection of a collective mind system of suchness now here i'm getting into a realm of metaphysics and it's personal um it's meaningful uh, i'm happy to share it with you but it's not part of traditional dharma so <laughs> But you have a very interesting proposal here that, that follows, um, and that's where you say, um, do you think it would be possible using cybernetics, cognitive psychology, and or any other relevant field of study to develop multimedia, online plus offline, social network platform? Uh, and <laughs> thank you for the reference to, TMI in my new books <laughs> for actualizing the intention underlying such a platform to replicate the functions of mindfulness and clear comprehension on the path on a scale that might awaken the collective mind system as a whole. Well, I think from the point of view of the particular metaphysic that I just expressed, I would say that's exactly what we're engaged in as each of us as an individual pursues our own awakening it is a con the a contribution to uh the well at the very least the awakening of all sentient beings right which is the uh expressed objective from the mahayana point of view uh and that uh, and, and this, I'm really comfortable with this, that this, this is really what we're doing. So the point of your own awakening is that as each individual awakens, it brings the, brings the totality of sentient, uh, uh, hesitate to use the word consciousness, but I will, a sentient consciousness towards, towards awakening. So I think that's what we're actually engaged in. Now, as for your other suggestions, uh, making use of all kinds of technology, I think that's also what is happening right now. There's a lot of that going on in different places in the world. A hotbed of that is that whole uh, um, Bay Area in California, etc. This is happening on a number of different things. People like myself are trying to refine meditation techniques to be more effective and to, to bring people to awakening more quickly, more reliably. But people are also experimenting with various kinds of um, brain stimulation, that kind of technology, with uh, certain kinds of neurofeedback, with, even with the use of psychoactive chemical substances. Um, well, as a matter of fact, the use of um, psychoactive plants in a religious format is something that has existed for 
thousands of years with the purpose of bringing people to the awakening. Now, I, what I feel is that we live in an incredible time, a credible time where because of the internet, because, because the wisdom systems of all these different cultures are available to individuals like you and I, we can take that wisdom that has been developed in, in uh, geographically and culturally isolated locations, we can bring it all together and come up with more powerful practices for bringing about awakening. But at the same time, as we learn more about the brain, as we eventually come to understand how does the brain change corresponding to uh, practice and as we achieve uh, insight and awakening, uh, these technologies might be able to facilitate this happening more quickly. Uh, Shinzen Young has uh, expressed uh, his, his view for a time where you uh, walk through a door off the street into uh, an office where at the front desk you're asked to sign a, a, some kind of a lease or a waiver or something. They take you into the back room and when you come out some period later, you're a fully awakened being. <laughs> so, uh, I'm I, I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. But in, anyway, it's a, it's it's something. It is what a lot of people are working towards, including myself, is is trying to bring us to a place where more and more people become awakened more and more quickly and more and more easily, and with the idea that we may end up with an awakened culture, an awakened, awakened society, and a, a, a global society where the principles of the Dharma uh, are, are the cultural norms rather than being isolated exceptions. Where, where the global culture is being created and led by people who are awakened, where children are being born into a society where the Dharma becomes a part of their earliest experiences so that they don't have to spend years in cushion overcoming the uh, conventional worldview, which is at odds with insight and awakening, but rather children grow up in awakened society as awakened beings. So this is what this is what I look forward to as a possible future. Now of course the question is whether we're going to survive long enough for that. <laughs> and so I am both uh, an optimist and a cynic when it comes to this. Uh, I'm very optimistic about the possibility when I look at what's happening in the world and how rapidly um, we are approaching um, a disaster of cataclysmic global proportions. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know whether it's going to have to happen awfully quickly. <laughs> it's kind of a race there. So I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic cynic when it comes to what you're proposing. That doesn't keep me from doing everything that I can to try to contribute to that, just in case. <laughs>
Just in case we do have the time. And good friends of, of mine, you know, there's, there is a man with a PhD at Tucson at the University of Arizona who is using sound to stimulate uh, and inhibit various parts of deep brain structures. Uh, and, his, and Shinsen Young is working uh, in close uh, conjunction with him on this. The idea being to, to, as you say, discern what are the changes that take place in the brain associated with awakening, and are there ways to use technology to make this happen more quickly? So that's my that's my answer to that that question. Is <laughs> um, yeah. I was uh, wondering. Yes. Uh, uh, once, when I was in India, I I went to a uh, a place where there there was donations being given to this one Swami. Mm -hmm. and he had pictures all around of him, and and he came in with a, uh, a security guard that was uh, had a gun in his holster. And I, I sort of, I mean, I have to admit that I developed somewhat of a prejudice against this person that seemed to be so full of ego. But at, at one point, I felt like I could feel his consciousness probing my mind. Mm -hmm. And my reaction when that happened was, boy, you have a great big ego. And uh, right after that, I was told to get out of the uh, <laughs> out of the ashram. Now, my question is: Is that part of a larger mind experience? I mean, or I guess you know, whatever. What would you call it? Um, sort of teleca telepa telepathy, or yeah, it, it, it would be a kind of telepathy. Yes, and. Um, I would say this is, uh, you, you, you've heard me say this before, Bill, that our individual minds are, um, they're really far more porous than we tend to believe. Um, and perhaps the largest function of an individual mind is to, to, block out um, information from other minds so that, you know, we can take care of ourselves as individual organisms and uh, they uh, kind of make a joke of it so that when we walk out the door in the morning, we know, we, we know where to go to work. We don't go to our next door neighbor's job. <laughs> but uh, I, our minds are all connected. Everything is interconnected. And there you know, I, 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 I do believe that it is possible and, and that it has happened, it does happen, and probably happens more often than uh, most, most of us scientifically oriented people would like to think, that people, that there are ways and that people do succeed in uh, tapping into the mental activity of others. 
that is indeed one of the cities knowing the minds of others and um and it, it can be developed in the case of somebody that you're talking about i would say this is somebody who has sounds like they've developed that particular city but it doesn't sound like they have much in the way of, of insight or awakening um, they've just developed the city of being able to sense that 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 western fellow over there um, thinks thinks i'm egotistical and uh he might do or say something that would uh would uh um might cause somebody else in my audience to uh uh to, to lose faith in me so i better get him out of the room <laughs> it, it was an interesting place because it was all surrounded by people that were counting cash at these little at these little mm -hmm. desks uh in a typical sort of marwari uh uh situation but um i i was just trying to connect it to this idea of, of the of a of a universal mind or a collective social mind i guess what you can see really develop in mobs yes you know and and as you as you taught us before how almost all emotions but especially uh negative emotions are really infectious yes. and i mean i think you even put it in terms of that when somebody has a negative emotion they go around searching for people who will share it with them that's right yes they do and and actually uh uh and there's a variation on that that eckhart tolle often speaks of that that when somebody is suffering that what Eckhart refers to as their pain body is looking to go around and activate the pain bodies of other people too. <laughs> I, I, that is a very real phenomenon and it's something that uh, is, is pretty self-evident if you just look around you. Um, with pain, with negative emotions, things like that. Sometimes you can see it, uh, well, we, we do see it with joy. We, we do the same thing with joy. And I'm, I'm sure almost everyone, at least I would hope everyone has had at least one experience of being in the presence of somebody who just brought out their positive side, their joyful side that helped them to experience the present moment in, in its most beautiful and, and, and wondrous way. Um, I, I know I've had that good fortune and you know I, I believe it's essentially the same phenomenon as uh, as those people who you know they, they walk into the room and just the opposite happens. Uh, you know <laughs> there's a sense of tension or negativity or something like that that uh, occurs. I've always wondered what it would be like to walk into uh, a room where uh, our current president was present. <laughs> oh, full of suffering. I, I, that's what I would expect. Yes, uh, that's 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 what I that's what I see when uh, when I see him. Is I, I just see a, a really a suffering being. Yes, and one who has no hesitation to spread his suffering beyond himself. Yeah. 
the infectiousness of emotions, I think you can even see on something like Facebook. Good. Yes, that's right. We're, it's not, uh, it's not limited to people being in contact with each other. I mean, that's the interesting thing about mind is that, uh, um, it doesn't seem to be subject to these kind of spatial limitations. You know, there's an interesting thing about um, psi research, PSI, you know, research into uh, psychic phenomena, is there's been an awful lot of it done. And it very consistently produces, you know, uh, or demonstrates a statistically significant effect you can find people who are sensitive and who can, uh, and uh, it's just barely statistically significant, but there's a statistically significant correlation between what these sensitives say that they can have knowledge of uh, uh, or communicate with beings on the other side of the world. Or there, there is the common experience of someone who uh, knows just before they get a phone call from a relative that lives a uh, distance away or people that um, people that are overcome by a sense of dread and uh, find out later that that uh, someone they really care about died uh, on the other side of the world that's just when they had that feeling so so there's more than enough evidence that that the this this interconnectedness of, of of the causal interconnectedness of everything is reflected in an interconnectedness of mind. And of course, from my point of view, being very much a non-dualist, that mind and matter are there is no such thing as mind. There's no such thing as matter. There's something some other stuff that looks like mind from the inside and it looks like matter from the outside, but it's the same stuff. So when we study the material universe and we see how totally interconnected everything is in the physical universe, if mind is really the same stuff as the matter that we're studying in this way, then mind must exhibit that same degree of interconnectedness that we're able to see in, in the physical universe because it's the same stuff. So what we're talking about here are different, different manifestations of that that we can recognize. And I kind of think of it in terms of uh, like so many things, like why do we have a sense of self? Why do we have craving? Why do we experience pain? You know, all, we can make a whole list of questions like that. And the answer to all of them, you know, why is there anger, so on and so forth? Why don't we like people that are different from us? The answer is that all of those tendencies serve a functional purpose in terms of the survival and, and continuation of life. Uh, the, the survival and reproductive success of an individual, of their offspring, of the species that they are a member of, of and of life itself, uh, you know, organisms developed a powerful sense of self because it's extremely functional. They experience craving 
uh, uh, powerfully compulsive cravings because it, it's it's functional. It contributes to survival. We any organism what a dog craves is different than what a lizard craves, but it is the craving is appropriate to the survival and reproductive success of dogs and, and lizards and in each of these cases. So, um, yeah. We're, we're just, we're trying to transcend biological evolution here using our minds. And one of the things that we experience is a kind of, of interconnectedness of mind. And we come more, become more sensitive to that. I'm not so sure, but what perhaps some other species experience this even more than we do. If you, uh, if you look at a flock of birds and, uh, you know, or, or a school of fish, uh, and it's it's amazing. You know, you you couldn't you, you well uh, when the uh, Olympics was in uh, China, we all got to see just how incredibly well coordinated very large numbers of people could do, and the in the dancers that that uh, I don't know if you saw the opening ceremonies of of the Olympics in China, but and it was incredible what they did. Um, they, they did that through training, but I'm sure that somehow they had to be tapping into some of the same ability that we see in those large flocks of, what is it, starlings that uh, yeah, move in such incredibly coordinated ways. So many different birds and so many fishes. Yes. Schooling, the schooling activity and, yes. and, and, and the way they respond to each other to, to form this. And, and even their internal desire to form those groups. I mean, whatever the programming is there. I mean, it, it, that, that is amazing. I, I was, uh, I mean, two, two analogies of that or two ways of talking about that was one, the idea that my, mind or mental activity is an emergent property, mm -hmm. a, a top life that just ends up having its, different rules as life is an emergent property mm -hmm. upon which chem chemistry yes. and it ends up having its own rules. And, and the other reference was the, uh, where you, I think, talked about consciousness mm -hmm. as being experienced or occurring when there's an information exchange. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. And so we are very sophisticated information exchange machines, uh, biological, biochemical machines. Uh, and that information exchange, uh, we experience as consciousness. And because we have a lot of uh, memory uh, that's a necessary part of our brain's functioning, uh, we we see ourselves being conscious, though we have a subjective experience of consciousness. There is something that it is like to be Bill Wallen. There's something it's like to be Chuladasa. There's something it's like to be Alex. So, and that's because information exchange is taking place 
within our mind brains. And uh, there is a memory component that allows for a self-reflexivity so that we, the experience arises of I am, I am thinking, I am feeling, I am conscious. Yeah. But it's happening, but information exchange is a universal phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Right? The, the, uh, an electron circling a proton in a hydrogen atom is a process, an ongoing process of information exchange. Uh, I am positive, you are negative. Let's circle each other. <laughs> uh, although that's, that's kind of an outdated view of the atom and electron, but that's beside the point. So, anything else? Uh, anything else that we might talk about? Or we, we've done the questions that we set out to do. Um, actually, I'm going to have a quick look because I think a couple of people submitted questions thinking that, let's see. Uh, I think so. Uh, yes, uh, there's a couple of questions that were posted that we could deal with. Um, Harpreet Dev asks, this is really interesting in terms of what we've just been talking about. Does our practice in Samatha and or Vipassana get carried to the next life? Do we take rebirth with the same level of progress that we died? So I'm going to uh, sidestep, Harpreet, I'm going to sidestep these, this issue of uh, rebirth as reincarnation and, and go more directly to this. Um, let's say you practice intensely in your life and you develop uh, samatha and vipassana, but not only do you develop samatha and vipassana, but you attain insight or perhaps awakening. Um, does does the samatha skill and the vipassana skill that you develop, does it go out of existence? Does it just blink off like a light when you, when, at the end of your life? If you've achieved some degree of insight and awakening, does that just disappear when, uh, when we die? Well, this is one of the questions that the Buddha was always uh, avoiding answering. And uh, so, I'm not following in his example by answering it, but from my point of view, and this is exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about here uh, uh, previously, that to the degree that you develop skill in samatha practice, um, in the future, it's going to be a little bit easier for others to master samatha and there may be particular others who are in sort of a, a closer resonance with your mind uh, and and they will benefit more from your 
the, the skill in samatha that you develop, that whatever insight and awakening that you were able to develop in the course of your lifetime, when you die, is it contributes to the insight and awakening of other beings in a, in a very similar way to that. Um, and so that's how I would answer your question is that whatever thing, whatever, whatever you do with your life, be it positive, like developing samatha vipassana skills or achieving uh, uh, insight and awakening, good or bad, uh, to the degree that you become a hate-filled person or a person who uh, manifests cruelty or things like that. Well, whatever these things are, they do continue on. They don't cease to exist just because the body in which they were manifesting uh, goes into pieces. <laughs> so that's, that's my answer to your question, Harpreet. Um, so, um, if you'd like to imagine that maybe, let's say, let's say you become a stream enterer and that some, some infant is born, some child grows and somehow their mind becomes particularly attuned to, let's just call them frequency, energetic frequencies, similar to what yours was before you died, then why wouldn't they, in the same way that a string tuned to just the right frequency, if there is a source of sound of that same frequency, that string will begin to vibrate and, and make the sound at that same frequency. If you were a stream entrant and there is another mind that becomes attuned. I mean, that, that, that degree of insight and awakening that you develop is still there waiting for others that can resonate at that same frequency and it will make it that much easier for that being to become a stream entrant. Uh, if you want to think of that as being a reincarnation of yourself, I don't mind, but uh, <laughs> there's also some problems with that. But yeah. There's one other question, and uh, let's see if, if it's appropriate to deal with that. Um, from Dana or Dana Trigstad. Um, when I experience the breath with the body, I can find subtle sensations in any body part with enough diligence. This is expected. However, I find that I can internally draw energy through any body part. And this relays a very tangible feeling. It is as though I'm sucking energy through my nadis. The feeling is like air swishing through, uh, wishing through a wind tunnel, very much a suction feeling, as if you were drawing water into a syringe. It is quite pronounced and I can produce the feeling on command through my whole body or specifically through any part of my body. I'm wondering what I'm doing here and what I am and should I be doing it. Um, what I would say Donna is that uh, um, 
I would highly recommend that you uh, learn something about in, uh, various kinds of energy practices, uh, kundalini, tai chi, qigong, anything like that. It sounds like you have a natural propensity to this. Um, and um, I think that un unfortunately, um, this is underemphasized in Buddhist training, is working with these uh, these energies. Uh, I have I have reason to believe people I've talked to, things that I've heard and read, and so forth, that that working with these energies can be extremely powerful, um, and can contribute to what in a Buddhist framework we call insight and awakening. So I didn't mention that earlier, but that, that is part of the menu of things that I encourage. I encourage people doing traditional Buddhist practices to explore these, these bodily energy phenomena much more deeply. I think there is so much more uh, to that and so many ways that that could be used. Once again, I see it as being another kind of technology uh, that if it, it, it may work better with, may work really well with somebody like you, Donna, but uh, would probably be helpful for all kinds of people and that we really need to look into and understand more deeply and make better use of. Right, right there alongside of different meditation techniques from different traditions uh, are these, these other techniques from yoga and, and, uh, and other Chinese, Japanese, so forth, uh, uh, energy traditions. There's a lot to be offered there uh, and a lot to be explored. So that's what you should be doing with it, Donna. <laughs> yes. Could these uh, also be other forms of pity? Well, that's what he's talking about is pity. But I'm what I'm suggesting is that that pity is a manifestation of that same energy that is called kundalini and chi and inner winds and everything else. Mm -hmm. And so, in this, in my treatment of it in TMI, it's kind of the Theravadan approach, which says, okay, this happens, you feel this energy and stuff, uh, but uh, it's just something that happens along the way. Don't, don't, uh, don't get caught up in it. And um, I, I no longer feel that way. I feel like this is really important uh, for, for most of us, maybe as far as we're gonna go with it is we're going to experience it as pity. It is going to mature into uh, full-blown joy. That is going to, in turn, transform into tranquility and equanimity of fully developed sonata. But for some people, and maybe potentially for for all people, these are energies. The, the, well, we call them energies, for lack of a better word. But these are these are something that can be used, that have been used for a, a, 
as means of spiritual development. And so, yes, let's, it is PT. Uh, by just the way we sort of casually treat it as something that comes, uh, you put up with it, uh, might be pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, but eventually it, we move beyond it. Um, I, I think a much more mature uh, approach to this would be to understand more clearly what it is and perhaps be using it all the way along rather than waiting for it to spontaneously occur as a result of unification of the mind. In other words, if it arises as a result of unification of the mind, why couldn't it be cultivated in other ways and therefore contribute to the unification of the mind? Reasonable question. <laughs>